According to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our growth comes through the scriptures. Once again, we are in the book of Jeremiah, Jeremiah chapter 28 this morning. Jeremiah chapter 28, moving on. We're doing one chapter per Sunday. As we uh, successfully, the Lord blessed our study in uh, Isaiah to be able to cover 66 chapters in 66 weeks, and now uh, following that up with 52 weeks of Jeremiah, in 52 uh, chapters of Jeremiah in 52 weeks. Um, quite interesting to see how the Lord provides in this regard. Uh, I am considering what's going to follow Jeremiah too, by the way, so keep that in your prayers, as I might have mentioned a week ago. Um, couple of leading contenders, including the book of Hebrews. So keep that, uh, keep that in your thinking as well. So I'll pray for that and ask for the Lord's blessing. But today we're in uh, Jeremiah chapter 28, and we left Jeremiah a week ago wearing some bonds. Uh, the Lord had told him to fashion some, some bonds and put them on and put them on uh, these messengers that had come from, from five different kings around and to send the, the bonds back to those kings so that the envoys could uh, theoretically could put the bonds on those kings as well in order to communicate the truth that uh, God was giving the entire world, the entire region that is the inhabited world in that part of the planet, giving that whole inhabited region over to Nebuchadnezzar and that he was giving Nebuchadnezzar a sovereignty that no emperor had ever had prior to that time a sovereignty over men and animals as well, that uh, these realms of creation were being subject to Nebuchadnezzar himself personally, the servant of Yahweh. And uh, so many things there that we were looking at in chapter 27 have sparked a lot of thinking and a lot of concepts that foreshadow what we can look forward to in the millennial kingdom of Jesus Christ, when not only the realm of mankind, but the animal realm as well, all creation is going to be subject to our Lord and Savior. The lion will lie down with the lamb, a little child will lead them. Uh, He can put his hand in a cobra's nest and have no fear because Jesus Christ will rule over the human and animal realm uh, in the millennial kingdom with great grace and glory, and uh, things to look forward to there. A foreshadowing of that is in the reign of Nebuchadnezzar, and specifically the animals are mentioned. We'll see it again today. The animals are specifically mentioned in ways that other scriptures don't go into, and so we're left kind of puzzling over some of the ramifications there, and well, how did that work? And what all was involved in that lion's den anyway? Uh, how do we know uh, some of the uh, impact of things there, it, given the fact that the animals were placed under Nebuchadnezzar's sovereign control? So uh, anyway, more questions and answers at this point, and things that maybe we'll learn when we get to heaven, or, or sooner maybe. Um, but for today, we're crossing over into chapter 28, and uh, we're going to be introduced to a rascal by the name of Hananiah. And Hananiah will stand against Jeremiah. And uh, they're going to go back and forth with uh, their messages, polar opposites. So they both can't be sent by the Holy Spirit. God is not the author of confusion. And if Daniel's saying one thing and Hananiah is saying something else, I'm sorry, if, did I say Daniel? If Jeremiah is saying one thing and Hananiah is saying something else, then... Uh, We've got a problem, all right? And so one of them is not serving the Holy Spirit. One of them is lying, and uh, that's going to get exposed here by the end of the chapter. Here's the clue. Jeremiah lives at the end of the chapter and goes on to write, you know, 20 more chapters, 22 more chapters. Hananiah drops dead at the end of this chapter, all right? And it shows you the seriousness with which God approaches his word. On that note, 
Let's approach his word with seriousness. Let's bow before him, calling upon him to open the eyes of our understanding. Shall we pray? Almighty Father, we come before you this morning thankful for your truth and humble, Father, before you. Who are we? Who do we think we are that we should intrude into your thinking, your planning, your design, your will? And yet by your grace, Father, you have welcomed us to do just that. You command us to come before you. And I thank you, Father, that by your grace we are able to obey these commands that we present ourselves before you as workmen needing not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. And so, Father, we do come before you, not just as students. Father, we don't want to be hearers only who delude themselves, but doers of the word of God. Father, we are humble before you to know that as you teach us today, that we are ready, ready, willing, and able to go forward and live this truth, making the application accountable to live out what you're teaching us today. And I do thank you, Father, in Jesus Christ's most precious and holy name. Amen. Now, in the same year, in the beginning of the reign of Zedekiah, king of Judah, in the fourth year, in the fifth month, Hananiah, the son of Azer, the prophet, who was from Gibeon, spoke to me in the house of the Lord, in the presence of the priests and all the people, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, I have broken the yoke of the king of Babylon, Within two years, I am going to bring back to this place all the vessels of the Lord's house, which Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, took away from this place and carried to Babylon. I am also going to bring back to this place Jeconiah, the son of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, and all the exiles of Judah who went to Babylon, declares the Lord, for I will break the yoke of the king of Babylon." That's his message, verses 1 through 4. And you talk about a happy message, wow, good news, happy days are here again, or they will be within two years, all right? And all the bygone things are going to be brought back, okay? What's bygone won't stay bygone, right? And so by golly, the bygone are coming back. And, and he's happy to preach this. And you might expect what the people are happy to hear. Because this is not what Daniel, what uh, Jeremiah had been talking about. Jeremiah said, no, they're gone and not coming back. They're gone and they're going to stay gone for 70 years before a visitation from Yahweh Sabaoth, from the Lord of hosts, will bring them back. All right? And so that's not a popular message. Not to this crowd. Not to the crowd that's still here. Remember, the faithful, positive volition remnant is already in Babylon. All right, Daniel's there. Ezekiel's there. There's a crowd of people already there. King Jeconiah is there with his mother. And I believe that that's where the remnant has been preserved. That the positive volition that would respond well to Jeremiah's message is not in Jerusalem to listen to Jeremiah's message. Uh, they, uh, the crowd in town is very much in favor of Hananiah. And so this is what we have to deal with here. And it's a great message so far as it goes. If it was true, we would all jump up and shout amen. And that's what Jeremiah does. When we get to verses 5 and following, uh, you see in verse 6, the prophet Jeremiah said, amen, right? Preach it. Uh, May the Lord do so. And uh, if only it was true, okay? And that's the, uh, the irony of the message. And a little bit of the shall we call it sarcasm, sanctified sarcasm, as it were. And we'll uh, deal with that when we get to that paragraph as well. But first of all, we start with this challenge. 
Hananiah challenges Jeremiah with a directly contradictory message. This is so diametrically opposed that there's no question. You have A and not A, and they both cannot be true. When, uh, when Jeremiah says this and Hananiah says that, uh, the, the listeners have to be critical. The listeners have to be uh, discerning. Search the scriptures, see if these things are so. Apply the principles to judge these prophets. One is a true prophet of Yahweh, one is a false prophet claiming to be sent from Yahweh, all right? And the people are without excuse. Everyone is without excuse. If you want to know the truth, God will be faithful. The good shepherd will be faithful. And he will make clear to you who is telling the truth and who is not. That's a, that's a promise that spans every dispensation, every stewardship, as we understand it, all right? The uh, uh, timeline there is one that I thought we could bring up from time to time. I can pop it out and here we go. Make it larger. My apologies. I meant to do this before class started, but there we have it. All right. 594 BC. It's all three of these events right there on that dot from uh, chapter 27 to chapter 28 to chapter 29. This is the timeline here. You'll notice it's been quite a while since 605 when uh, Daniel and his friends were taken into captivity, when uh, the uh, uh, judgment began here with the final kings of Judah, the final wicked kings of Judah that God starts to deal with with his prophet Jeremiah, the very hostile audience that does not want to hear what Jeremiah has to say. And so we have... uh, Jeconiah becoming king and Jeconiah being removed from his throne. He only reigned three months. Why are they so happy to have him back? <laughs> you know, uh, I have an idea that a politician that only stays in three months uh, in office for three months is likely to become very popular in the in the later years. They'll think back to him with some fondness because seriously, in three months, how much time did he have to do much damage? Right. So uh, maybe you know some of our best presidents ever are the ones that died shortly after inauguration day, and we say they did less damage that way. And we can think back to them. With with, with some fondness. Um, but the, the desire to get the, the furnishings back, to get the articles back, to get the implements back that were taken captive, to get their king back, hopefully get his mom back with him, you know, all these things are being promised uh, related to the, the lies that, uh, that Hananiah is uh, putting forth. You know, interesting that he comes from Gibeon. If you know anything of Old Testament history, the Gibeonites were famous liars. And uh, the Gibeonites deceived Israel during Joshua's day. And a very famous chapter there, if you want to read about it, in Joshua chapter 9. Um, I won't spend a ton of time on it this morning, but it is. Uh, it should be well known. Back in Joshua chapter 9, you know, they, uh, Israel came out of Egypt God parted the Red Sea. He brought them through the wilderness. He brought them into the land. He parted the River Jordan. They cross into the, the land, the promised land, and they start winning. And they, they, they conquer Jericho. They conquer Ai. And the inhabitants of the land are terrified. They know they can't stand up against the Lord. They can't stand up against the Jews and, and their God. And so the Gibeonites decide, rather than fight, you know, resist this or fight, let's just surrender and live. And and remarkably enough, in their twisted, satanic, uh, deceitful, ugly illustration of what they're doing, they are actually biblically illustrating the, the principles of Jeremiah 27 and 28 and 29 
the very message Jeremiah pre- is preaching right now is submit and live. Submit and live. Put the yoke on. Surrender to Nebuchadnezzar. And that's the message not only to the Jewish people, but we saw last week as well, to Tyre and Sidon and Ammon and Moab and Edom. All the surrounding kings uh, were told to surrender. Jeremiah made five sets of yokes, five bonds to put on their necks and told them, surrender to Nebuchadnezzar. Now here are the Gibeonites and they're, they're deceitful. God had commanded that they be exterminated, that they be uh, destroyed, removed from the land. God is removing uh, these uh, Canaanites from human history. And uh, anyway, I'm not going to read all 15 verses here and and, and spend the bulk of the time, but you can spot it pretty quickly. Uh, In verse 3, the inhabitants of Gibeon heard what Joshua had done to Jericho and to Ai, so they acted craftily and sent out as envoys and took worn-out sacks on their donkeys and wineskins, worn out and torn and mended, worn out and patched sandals on their feet, worn out clothes on themselves. All the bread of their provision was dry and become crumbled. So they, they, they create a, a scheme. They create a, a disguise. They act like they came from a long distance when they just came from next door in Gibeon. All right, But they, they dressed themselves and they brought the crusty bread and they, they played it off. Right, So they show up to Joshua to surrender. In verse 6, they say, We have come from a far country, so therefore make a covenant with us. And... Uh, there's a little suspicion in verse 7, but they didn't follow it up. They didn't follow up the suspicion by inquiring of the Lord and asking for the will of God and saying, Lord, what is your will in this? Do we accept them as our slaves? Do we, you know, are they telling the truth? So uh, the men of Israel said to the Hivites, perhaps you are living within our land. How then shall we make a covenant with you? But they said to Joshua, we are your servants. And uh, Joshua says, well, who are you and where do you come from? They say, well, we've come from a very, very far country because of the fame of the Lord your God. Oh, we're, we're impressed with Yahweh. We want to serve Yahweh. And we've heard the report of him and all that he did in Egypt and all that he did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan, to Sihon, king of Heshbon, to Og, king of Bashan. So our elders and all the inhabitants of our country spoke to us saying, take provisions in your hand and for the journey and go to meet them. And, and so then they show the, the bread, right? In verse 12, this is our bread. This bread was warm when we took it for our provisions out of our houses in the day that we left to come to you. And behold, now it's dry and become crumbled. And these wineskins, they were brand new, right? Now look how worn out they are. So the whole thing was a monster disguise and the whole thing was a sham. And they've brought props. They've brought evidence to support their sham. So the men of Israel took some of their provision and did not ask for the counsel of the Lord. That's the biggest clue right there in, in Joshua 8, uh, 9 and verse 14. They didn't ask. You know, if there's something you're uncertain about, ask. Because God knows all things. So Joshua made peace with them, made a covenant with them to let them live. Now they've got a problem. Because now they've made a covenant to let them live and God's given the order to, to kill them all. And so Joshua is now in a, in a stuck position. He has to disobey something. He has to disobey God's command to kill them all, or he has to uh, disobey God's command to be faithful to his covenant oaths. And uh, it's it's just a horrible aspect here. Anyway, that's the previous story. And it's interesting that it's the very same city now, Gibeon, is where uh, Hananiah is from. So the Gibeonites deceived Israel in Joshua's day, but this particular Gibeonite will fail to impress Jeremiah. You know, it is a subtle expression of evil to cast the word of God into doubt. 
Genesis 3.1. Sometimes it's subtle. Sometimes the serpent says, Indeed, has God said, Thou shalt not eat from any tree of the garden? And it's a very subtle expression of evil to cast doubt on the Word of God. But it becomes a very bold expression of evil to directly contradict what God says. So when you, when you go to Genesis 3 and you see the deception of the serpent there, you look at verse 1 and you see a subtle expression of evil. I'm just asking questions, you know. Has God said, really, is that true? I'm just asking questions here. And then you get to verse 3, thou shalt not die. Surely thou shalt not die. God knows in the day you eat of it, your eyes will be open. You'll become like him, knowing good and evil. So you caught the difference on that? It's, it's subtle, it's bold, and then it's brazen. Absolutely brazen to contradict what God says and then to put words in God's mouth to not only contradict Him, but to allege that He's the one saying these lies that are coming from you. All right. It's a long point and maybe too long, but three staged statements here on this point. It is a subtle expression of evil to cast the Word of God into doubt. Genesis 3.1. It is a bold expression of evil to directly contradict what God says. Genesis 3, verses 4 and 5. It is pure blasphemy to change what God says and to put one's words into God's mouth. You know, the serpent didn't even do that. The serpent didn't even say, thus saith the Lord. All the serpent did was lie about what would happen when they ate the fruit. Hananiah is going a step beyond Satan here, putting words in Yahweh's mouth, thus saith the Lord. Within two years, we're getting the articles back. Jeconiah's coming back. The queen mother's coming back. It is pure blasphemy to change what God says and to put one's words into God's mouth. This, by the way, was a lesson that we learned five chapters ago. This was taught already in Jeremiah 23, verses 31 and 32. You might recall this. Back in Jeremiah 23, we had a powerful chapter where Jeremiah was giving us a prophecy of a coming branch, a righteous branch. A messianic promise was coming that a great king was about to come. And um, in this chapter, he's condemning false prophets, condemning uh, false shepherds, who instead of shepherding the the flock are actually fleecing the flock. And uh, in Jeremiah 23, verses 31 and 32 Behold, I am against the prophets, declares the Lord, who use their tongues and declare, the Lord declares. (laughs) The Lord's not declaring it. They're declaring it. With their tongues are saying these things. Behold, I am against those who have prophesied false dreams, declares the Lord, and related them, and led my people astray by their falsehoods and reckless boasting. Yet I did not send them or command them, nor do they furnish this people the slightest benefit, declares the Lord. The slightest benefit, declares the Lord. And there are so many principles attached to this and so many applications to be drawn because our generation features many, many uh, Bible teachers. And I don't know what Bible they're reading because what they're teaching isn't in the Bible I'm reading. All right. But they stand and they say, thus saith the Lord. And then they spout something that's the total opposite of Scripture. All right, we, we deal with this in our generation. 
And this is, uh, this is to, uh, uh, I call it pure blasphemy. Pure blasphemy. Slander. Assigning it to God when God said no such thing. To change what God says and to put one's words into God's mouth. And so Hananiah here, by the way, his name means Yahweh is gracious. <laughs> what a horrible name. I think Azar and Mrs. Azar probably had a lot of high hopes for this boy. And they named him Hananiah. There's 11 Hananiahs in the Bible. It's a common name. It's a popular name. All right. Probably the most famous is, um, is uh, the, the buddy of uh, Daniel, one of the three young boys that, that gets carried away with Daniel and he gets renamed Shadrach. All right. But he, he starts with uh, Hananiah. Yahweh is gracious. Well, Hananiah here is making empty promises in accordance with what Jeremiah warned about last week. Okay? In Jeremiah 27, there was warning about listening to these empty promises, about lamenting for what was lost and dreaming that it could come back, dreaming that we can get a, a former king to return. Dreaming that things that are lost, it could be back the way it was. And if it was only the way it was, then it would be better. Well, it's not coming back. All right? The slide into apostasy is a one-way slide, and it's down. (laughs) Evil men and impostors proceed from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. And this slide downward, he said the real prayer is not that those vessels come back. Pray that you preserve the final vessels that remain because there's not many left. We preached this last week. This was the content. What was left? You had two uh, columns in front of the temple. You had a, a, a big laver, a big sea in front of the temple. You had some stands. The, the furnishings were gone, but the stands were still there. The bases were still there. Just keep those. Because what's left is a reminder of what, what was lost. And keep what's left as a remnant. All right? And pray that, that we don't fall into further apostasy that sees those things gone. So last week, you might recall, uh, Jeremiah 27, verses 16 through 18, I spoke to the priests and to all the people, saying, Thus says the Lord, Do not listen to the words of your prophets, who prophesied to you, saying, Behold... The vessels of the Lord's house will now shortly be brought again from Babylon. We're getting everything back that was lost. You know what? We're going to get prayer in public school again. you believe that? You know what? We're going to get uh, the Pledge of Allegiance is going to be spoken again. You know what? We're going to get um, Roe v. Wade is going to be overturned. Guess what? You know what else is coming back? And, And we start dreaming about things that are lost. The bygone days. And what's the promise? What's the real prayer? The real prayer is pray for what you have left because that's on the way out too. Pray that that is is spared and preserved and that a remnant can hold out. That there will be a preservative factor. Because in order for things to return, to be undone, requires a visitation. It requires the second advent of Jesus Christ. And uh, that also was spoken of in chapter 27, the day of visitation. We want a king back. We want, we want uh, you know, you think Zedekiah was all excited to have, uh, to have Jeconiah coming back? <laughs> you know, what does a king do if a former king returns? And that's not very common 
typically, at least in Judah anyway, you didn't get the new king until the other king died, and then uh, there wasn't really the risk that he was coming back. But here, you know, the idea, Jeconiah is still alive. He's a captive in Babylon. He could come back. And if he comes back, what happens to, uh, what happens to Zedekiah? He goes back to being, remember, he was Meth, Methaniah before he got renamed. He was the original Uncle Matt before he got renamed and became Zedekiah. Well, he'd have to go back to being Uncle Matt again. He wouldn't be the king anymore. So he's not too fond of that idea. But a lot of these other people would be excited to have Jeconiah back. Anyway, they are empty promises. Two years contradicts 70 years. You know? Are they going to be in captivity for 70 years? That's what Jeremiah preached. We taught that. That was in chapter 25, verses 11 and 12. That's what was put in writing. That's what the captives in Babylon were reading. Daniel was reading this prophecy. We find that out in in Daniel chapter 9. He's reading the prophecy of Jeremiah. So God said what he said and he put it in writing. And here comes this liar who tries to change the story and claims that God told him to. No, not at all. So two years contradicts 70 years. Jeconiah's return contradicts dying in Babylon. That was taught in chapter 22. You're going to go to Babylon, you're going to die in Babylon. And he does. He lives out his days in Babylon. And even though the end of his life was released from change, the end of his life was relative uh, peace and wealth and prosperity. He had a, an allowance from the king's table. Uh, we would say today he has a line item in the uh, White House budget. Uh, he gets to, uh, his household gets to eat at the uh, president's expense, at the king's expense. He never does return to Jerusalem. He's not permitted to return to Jerusalem. He dies in his captivity. And he's, he has sons that are born in captivity. He has grandsons that are born in captivity. And none of them ever get to sit on David's throne. All right? So there's the message. Jeremiah 22, as opposed to what Hananiah is talking about here in Jeremiah 28 and verse 4. I'm also going to bring back to this place Jeconiah, the son of Jehoiakim, king of Judah. No, you're not. It's a lie. One of these cannot be true because both of these have now been stated. All right? Unless we can find some way to reconcile, reconcile these, but they're, they're diametrically opposed. There is no reconciliation of these two diametrically opposed issues. So one of them is a true prophet from the Lord. The other one is a liar. All right, now it's interesting to watch Jeremiah's reply, and I already gave it away. It's the amen, the excitement of it, um, tongue-in-cheek, sarcasm. He's not at all believing any of this. So verse 5, the prophet Jeremiah spoke, then the prophet Jeremiah spoke to the prophet Hananiah in the presence of the priests, in the presence of all the people who were standing in the house of the Lord. So now it's Jeremiah's turn. And you want to know what's interesting? We label Hananiah the false prophet, because, you know, we get to the end of the chapter and we, we, we see that he dies and he's, he's, he's a false prophet. But we call him that. The text doesn't call him that. He's called Hananiah the prophet. He's, he has the same label that Jeremiah has. Jeremiah the Navi, Hananiah the Navi. They're both called prophets. It's just Hananiah has perverted his ministry. He's like Balaam, gone astray. As many prophets do, did. Back in the day. We don't have prophets today, but anyway. So now comes the rebuttal. And interestingly enough, he chooses 
a uh, sarcastic way to do it. He doesn't just stand up and say, no, you don't. No, he won't. No, he won't. Right? It's not a he said, he said. It's not a, it's not a this or a that. He just says, all right, hallelujah, praise God. Amen. Amen, brother. So the prophet Jeremiah said, amen. May the Lord do so. May it be. Okay? May the Lord do so. That's what you say when you say amen. Let it be true. May the, may the Lord do so. May the Lord uh, confirm the words which you have prophesied to bring back the vessels of the Lord's house and all the exiles from Babylon to this place. He says, that would be great if it happens. Yet, ooh, yet, okay? You know what a yet is? Yeah, it's like a but, okay? It's just nicer. Yet, hear now this word, okay? He says, we got a problem here. One of us is going to die. <laughs> okay because i preach something else and if i'm wrong i'm a false prophet and i gotta die and if you're wrong you're a false prophet and you gotta die so yet here now this word which i'm about to speak in your hearing and in the hearing of all the people see this is the best thing it's public it's out there the priests are listening the people are listening it's public so i mean our savior everything he preached was public they tried to accuse him of this and that, and he said, my entire ministry has been public. They had no evidence of anything. They had to trump up charges to put Jesus on the cross. So he says, uh, the prophets who were before me and before you from ancient times prophesied against many lands and against great kingdoms of war and calamity and of pestilence. The prophet who prophesies of peace when the word of that prophet comes to pass, then that prophet will be known as one whom the Lord has truly sent. <laughs> all right. First of all, the peace message is not very common. And more often than not, the, priest, the, the peace message, when it comes, is a lie. <laughs> okay. The peace promise coincides with the messianic promises for Israel anyway, not for the Gentile nations, but for, the, for Israel Peace is connected to the Prince of Peace. It's connected to Messiah. It's to the coming of the Christ. And, and to predict something and to say it's going to happen within two years, wow. All right. You're setting yourself up here, pal. <laughs> this is going to be demonstrated very quickly when it doesn't happen. And so there's consequences. If it comes to pass, that prophet will be known as the one whom the Lord has truly said. Now, what doesn't get said in verse 9 is the corollary, right? The, the but if, when peace doesn't come, when war comes, see, Jeremiah is the war-preaching prophet and Hananiah is the peace-preaching prophet, and uh, one of those isn't coming in two years. He doesn't have to even finish the thought. It finishes itself, which is the best part. And this, I think, gives Hananiah a chance to come clean. And I would love to read verse 10. Then Hananiah humbled himself, right? Hananiah came clean. He owned up to it. He falls on his face and he begs in front of Jeremiah and says, I, I have committed evil. I'm a liar. I'm a false prophet. <laughs> but, well, hold my breath. It's not going to happen. Okay? Cain didn't own up to murdering Abel. Adam didn't own up to it. Eve didn't own up for it. All these repentance opportunities. You want to know the only one that really owns up to it? David. David's the only one I'm aware of. 
When the prophet Nathan said, you're the man, you committed adultery at Bathsheba and you murdered Uriah, David's the only one I'm aware of that owned up to it and just said, guilty, I have sinned. We'll talk about that. That's coming up. In fact, I think I even included that in my, uh, in my notes. Jeremiah replies, amen, yet. <laughs> okay? Amen, yet. All right? And he's going to provide things to think about, not only for Hananiah. In fact, probably the eavesdroppers are the ones that Jeremiah is trying to get to. At this point, Hananiah is a lost cause. At this point, this false prophet demoniac, he's going to die. But if there are eavesdroppers, if there are witnesses, if there are people in the crowd that are listening, it may be, I've, I've done that. I, I've been in a, in a public venue and I've been giving the gospel to somebody that is just as hard-hearted and resistant as you might imagine. And I'm preaching the gospel. I'm talking about Jesus dying on the Christ, cross for our sins. I'm talking about the gift of eternal life. And that person I'm talking to has just shut down and is not listening. But the guy at the next table is listening. And the closer they lean in to listen, I just keep preaching. <laughs> All right? I just keep talking Christ and talking about eternal life. And who knows? God's in charge of that. Say, amen is a so be it, I believe it, make it so affirmation. We all get to say the amen in our prayer time, in our preaching, in our daily life, at whatever time. We get to offer the amen. It's a privilege to offer the amen. In the early church, they even designated a specific person to be the amen person. The one who would offer the amen, the confirmation uh, message. All right. Now we just put the amen thing on the wall and whoever's sitting in that chair, I'm going to count on them to say the amen when it happens. All right. It's a so be it, make it so, I believe it affirmation. In some cases, now here's the key, in some cases it can be employed ironically when the person knows something to not be true, but wishes that it were. Wishes that it were. And this was Paul's approach. The Apostle Paul used this in 1 Corinthians 4, verses 8 through 13. In fact, it's a very lengthy uh, sarcasm discourse. 1 Corinthians 4. And he talks about how the believers in Corinth were practically millennial. I mean, man, they were... Kings already. They're already reigning. And um, they're, they're, we might do something similar today with prosperity theology. If we encounter folks there that are preaching the health, wealth, and prosperity gospel and whatever, and they're, they're, they're preaching all this stuff, and we know that it's not true. I wish that it was true. Amen. You know, preach it, brother. And so Paul says, uh, you've already, you're already filled. You've already become rich. You've become kings without us. You notice that? He goes on to say, Indeed, I wish you were kings. (laughs) All right? I wish you had become kings so that we might reign with you. That would really, really be cool. I wish it was true. For I think God has exhibited us apostles last of all, as men condemned to death, because we have become a spectacle to the world, both to angels and to men. Paul describes his experience, and it's different from their delusional experience. We're fools for Christ's sake. You're prudent in Christ. We are weak. You are strong. You are distinguished. We are without honor. To this present hour, we are both hungry and thirsty and are poorly clothed and roughly treated and are homeless. We toil working with our own hands. When we are reviled, we bless. We bless. 
When you when we are persecuted, we endure. When we are slandered, we try to conciliate. We have become as the scum of the world, the dregs of all things, even until now. Isn't that great? I love that text. That passage is, is I mean, that's, that's the kind of thing, put that on a business card, <laughs> right? Bob Bolander, scum of the world, dregs of all things. That's all of us in the church age. That is each one of us as this world hates us, as this world hates Christ. That's the reality. And if someone's preaching something different, they're not preaching the New Testament. They're not preaching dispensational truth as per the church age reality. Jesus says, in this world, you will have tribulation. But be of good cheer, I've overcome the world. So we have this sarcasm. It's clear a false prophet would be identified by the failure of their prophecies Moses spoke of this in Deuteronomy 18, verses 20 through 22. First of all, anything they say, you have to hold up to the the scrutiny of Scripture. Anything they say, if it's at odds with Scripture, right off the bat, what else do you need to know? Um, You better be searching to see if these things are so. Search the Scripture. See if these things are so. Search and listen to the prophet. See if his short-term prophecies come true. If, and then you have the, the credibility for the long-term prophecies. Jeremiah had both. Isaiah had both. They all did. The, the prophets were given short-term and long-term prophecies. The, Isaiah talks about a, a virgin conceiving and having a son. And then the prophetess of his day has a son that he names Maher Shalal Hashbaz. But that becomes the assurance that, guess what? A day is coming when a virgin shall conceive and have a son. Okay. Because uh, Maher Shalal Hashbaz was not uh, virgin born. We get that. But short-term prophecies, long-term prophecies, this is how God operated in the Old Testament. And you can find this in Deuteronomy 18, verses 20 through 22, this assurance here that um, if, they're, if, they're, if these prophecies don't come true, you know, demons will try to forge things. Fallen angels will try to predict things and then make them happen. And it's amazing how God thwarts all that. How he's able to overcome whatever it is the fallen angel's trying to accomplish because the fallen angel made a prophecy through their tool. So uh, Deuteronomy 18.20, The prophet who speaks a word presumptuously in my name, which I have not commanded him to speak, or which he speaks in the name of other gods, that prophet shall die. It's a, it's a death penalty. You may say in your heart, how will we know the word which the Lord has not spoken? When a prophet speaks in the name of the Lord, if the thing does not come about or come true, then this thing which the Lord has not spoken, the prophet has spoken is presumptuously, you shall not be afraid of him. God's not a liar. Everything he says comes true. Everything he says comes true literally true you don't have to allegorize you don't have to figuratize you don't have to weasel around it and say well kind of sort of in this way maybe a virgin has a baby guess what a virgin has a baby because that's what the prophet said this is what we can appreciate with our literal hermeneutic that we employ it's the only way to be fair to the text all right well he doesn't respond he doesn't confess he doesn't come clean he just makes it worse He makes it worse because he breaks what God has joined together. Let no man part asunder. What does he do? He snaps the yoke. He breaks the bonds that Jeremiah is under. So Hananiah the prophet, back to Jeremiah 28 now in verse 10. Hananiah the prophet took the yoke from the neck of Jeremiah the prophet and broke it. 
And Hananiah spoke in the presence of all the people, saying, Thus says the Lord, Even so I will break within two full years the yoke of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, from the neck of all the nations. Then the prophet Jeremiah went his way. Notice, he doesn't argue a second time. He said his thing. Hananiah doesn't respond. Hananiah doubles down and makes it worse. He engages in this prophetic pantomime and makes it worse. Notice that the yoke is broken. There's no coming back from that. Jeremiah turns and walks away. Doesn't even say a word. Walks away. (laughs) He makes it worse. Interesting, okay? Hananiah's brazen prophecy spoke contradictory content. And then it went beyond that. Because it also exhibited defiant visual indicators. Defiant visual indicators. Lying against what the Word of God says, but proving it with evidence. (laughs) Or trying to prove it with evidence. Convincing people of the lie with additional activities. Interesting. You know, uh, Satan will imitate God in so many different ways. He'll send false messengers. The, the, the wizards of, of Egypt try to replicate many of Moses' miracles. They try to counterfeit certain uh, miracles and certain things. We've got examples of this. By the way, if you want more, uh, 1 Kings 22 is an interesting example. Um, and, and I think it was more common than... We don't have as much evidence uh, text for this, but I think the the handful of instances we do have make it appear that this was rather normative. That uh, these false prophets were constantly playing themselves off as divine prophets, so they were doing things like the Ezekiel pantomimes, or the Jeremiah pantomimes, or the Isaiah pantomimes, the, the prophetic visual aids and displays that a true prophet would do. These phonies were doing likewise. All right, so First um, Kings 22, verses 11 and 12. Um, here's uh, Jehoshaphat and the king of Israel. These two Jewish kings are getting together. They're thinking about going to war against Ramoth Gilead. And uh, the king of Israel gets his phony prophets together. And Jehoshaphat says, uh, don't you have a prophet of Yahweh here that we can inquire of him? And uh, the king of Israel says, well, yeah, there's one left, but I hate him. I don't, he doesn't prophesy any good concerning me. I don't like what he has to say. His name is Mike Micaiah, the son of Imiah. And Jehoshaphat said, let, it not, let not the king say so. And so they bring him in. And you'll note, um, when the king of Israel and uh, Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, were sitting uh, each on his throne, arrayed in the robes at the threshing floor. Kind of interesting. you got two kings side by side, sitting on thrones side by side. And, and here comes Micaiah. And all the prophets were prophesying before them. And then Zedekiah, son of Hananiah, made horns of iron for himself. He's got some visual aids he's making here. He's manufacturing these iron horns. And says, thus says the Lord, with these you will gore the Arameans until they are consumed. <laughs> so he's got a lying message, and he's got some visual aids to go with him. He's manufactured these horns. And all the prophets were prophesying, thus saying, go up to Ramoth Gilead and prosper, for the Lord will give it into the hand of the king. And they're just a pack of liars. All right? 
And then Micah has his message. You get down to verses 24 and 25. Zedekiah, son of Hananiah, came near and struck Micaiah on the cheek and said, How did the Spirit of the Lord pass from me to speak to you? And Micaiah said, Behold, you shall see on that day when you enter an inner room to hide yourself. (laughs) You're going to find out. And you're going to find out when I'm not there, you'll be all alone. You're going to find out. Yahweh will deal with you. Anyway, so we've got some of this. And I suspect, I suspect that this is very normative for the prophet experience. We, we, we have glimpses of it in Isaiah, in Jeremiah, in Ezekiel, in Daniel. I think we get glimpses of it. And here is uh, maybe the biggest case. So this visual defiance brings so many concepts to our thinking. Man, think of what you can preach with this chapter. God puts a yoke on somebody and you snap it. God puts a bond on somebody and you say, well, I'm not under that. I can do what I want to do. You know, there's a lot of principles at play here that images and, and verses and concepts, I already mentioned one of them, uh, but what, how can any man lose what has been bound in heaven? I mean, think about what you're doing. God put that yoke on Jeremiah's neck and you're going to snap it off? Who, just who do you think you are? Jesus preached and promised to Peter, he said, what you bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven. What you loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven. For you to just brazenly and defiantly snap the bonds of something when God has not done that, woe be unto you, see. Or how about what God has bound together, let no man break. Okay, that's a divorce chapter, but concept. If God is binding, why are you loosing? If God has put the bond on on, uh, Jeremiah, why are you snapping it off? By the way, this is true personally, individually, corporately, maritally, uh, in, in terms of a local church, in terms of a nation, to be so defiant over the will of God. I mean, if God is handing us over to destruction, well, what are we going to do? And, and trust me, I'm the most flag-waving, patriotic guy in the room, but if God's doing something, what am I going to do? I'm going to submit to what God is doing. I'm not going to like it. But I know that God knows better than I do. And it's kind of hard to disagree with him at this point. And God less holy than him would have blasted us a long time ago. Okay? Anyway, I think about these things. Jesus Christ opens doors and closes doors. He opens doors no man can shut, and he shuts doors no man can open. This is true in Revelation. It's also true in Isaiah. It's true throughout the Scriptures. He opens doors and He closes doors. That's what we're looking for. That's what we're praying for. We're not going to open our own door and then say, hey, Lord, come bless this. We're going to pray and watch and see what door He opens. That's the door we're going to go through because He's going to bless that door. (laughs) We've got an opportunity maybe to get on the radio. I mentioned that Wednesday night. I pray about that. If the Lord's opening that door, I want to go through it. If He's not opening the door, I don't want to go through it. He opens doors no man can shut. He shuts doors no man can open. So pray about it and then and, and see if, if that's the will of God. We get, I get to be the, the Bible encouragement minute guy for the coming year. Well, if it's an open door, great. If not, oh well. Okay? Not like I don't have enough to do. We can, we can just stay busy doing what the Lord has. 
Pastor Dan Craw right now, pray for Corpus Christi Bible Church. We believe there's an open door there, and it might even be today. It might even be this very hour. I don't know. But the, um, the, uh, the deacon chairman, a fellow named Brian Leeton, talked to Dan last week and said, Dan, we are unanimous. That there's the deacons, and we're going to present your name to the membership for a vote. Don't know when, don't know how, but it's going to happen. And it might, like I say, it could be today. It might even be happening right now while I'm saying these words. If it's the Lord opening this door, then who can shut it, right? We're going to go through it. We're going to be obedient. We're going to thank Him because He's the one who opens doors and closes doors. He binds and He looses. And if He puts a yoke on something and doesn't let it happen, thank Him for that too. Say, thank you, Lord. I would get in trouble if I was going that way. Thank you for not letting me go that way. The best thing about a yoke is that you put two oxen together and the other one's got to go where the other one's going to (laughs) go. All right? And we're yoked to Jesus Christ. Jesus says, take my yoke upon you. All right? All ye who are weary and heavy laden, for my yoke is easy, my burden is light. You and I, we get to be yoked with Jesus. Isn't that great? And so to be in His will, to be in His plan, to walk where He walks, why should I be afraid of anything? Everywhere I'm walking, He's walking right there with me. And in order for me to head off into the Thule's and, and leave the path and go off and do my own thing, to be the, the you know, I did it my way kind of thing, what do I got to do first? I got to break that yoke and head off to the, to the Thule's because Jesus is not going that way. Finally, as the chapter wraps up here, Jeremiah goes to Hananiah privately with a sin and a death message. And, and to me, it's curious how so far in this chapter, everything's been out in the open. Everything's been in full view of everybody listening and, and all that. But Jeremiah went his way in verse 11. And then the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah after Hananiah the prophet had broken the yoke from off his neck. And don't get me wrong, I suspect on an earthly level, Jeremiah was happy to not be wearing that dumb thing. <laughs> okay? I mean, I suspect God who turns cursing into blessing and whatever, I mean, it was kind of a nice break, a nice day off and, and whatever, you know. There was probably a part of Jeremiah wondering, you know, how, how, long, how much longer was he going to wear this thing anyway? And then a false prophet snaps it off and it's kind of a silver lining to the whole, to the whole promise. Okay? I, I don't know. Imagine Jeremiah was waiting for the word of the Lord to come to him saying, make yourself another set of stocks and put them on yourself. And, but that didn't happen. Okay? So he was out of it. He was great, very happy to be out of it. And this is my one side trip for the hour, if I may. Can I tell an old army story? Yes, I can tell an old army story. The um, boot camp, I got caught by my drill sergeant with my hands in my pockets. And I can't begin to tell you what a violation that is. All right? And, and you're wearing an army uniform, which has dozens of pockets anyway. You know, you think, why have pockets if you can't put your hands in your pockets? I, I like putting hands in my pockets. Well, I was in line to use the phone. It was my first phone call in weeks. And I was, I was going to be given like a, a five-minute call or whatever it was going to be. I'm in line at the payphone. I didn't get my phone call. All right? Because while I was in line... My hands were in my pockets, and oh my. Drill sergeant caught me, yelled at me, came down on me like you wouldn't believe. 
disrespecting the uniform, looking unprofessional and a disgrace to the armed forces and dishonoring to our nation and don't you love, you know, whatever. Anyway, it made me feel horrible. And I knew there was a lot of pain in my future. I was expecting a lot of push-ups. I was expecting latrine duty or cleaning or something. Well, next to the phone booth, next to the, the pay phone was the flag stand. And, and in the bottom of the, the flag area there were these little pebbles, these little rocks. It was very decorative and it was very attractive and all that. And these little rocks. And my drill sergeant pointed to those rocks and he said, you see those rocks? Fill your pockets with those rocks. Every pocket. Every pocket until it's so full you can't possibly put your hands in your pockets ever again. And so I did. And I learned how heavy the army uniform can be. Because there's two breast pockets, two of other pockets, there's front pockets, there's back pockets, there's two cargo pockets left and right. There's a lot of pockets in an army uniform. And and when you fill every pocket with these little pebbles, you look like yeah, the, the Pillsbury Doughboy or the Michelin Man or something. You are very round at that point because all your pockets are, are bulging with these rocks and it weighs a lot. And I think I was, for three or four days, I was, I was like that. All right. And then thankfully, the prophet Hananiah came along. And the prophet Hananiah was a different drill sergeant on a different, on a different uh, day, on a different course. So we, we, the thing was, they took us to the obstacle course. Yeah. That's what I said was, oh, <laughs> obstacle course, okay? I'm going to run. I'm going to climb a rope. I'm going to go over a wall. I'm going to, this isn't happening, okay? I, no human's going to do that with all the stones that are, anyway, so we get there and the first order of business, the drill sergeant says, all right, now we were lining up over on this side. He says, all right, now, first thing, before we get started, I need everybody to empty their pockets. And man... <laughs> I was the happiest buck private you ever saw because I, I said, okay, I was emptying my pockets and that was great. That was absolutely great. And, and so, and, and I was kind of, you know, dreading what was going to happen that night or the next day or whatever. We get back to the barracks and what happens when the other guy catches me with my empty pockets. I was already ready to make my defense because, well, he told me to and I did. And anyway, so grace upon grace, I got to empty my pockets. I ran the obstacle course. I felt great, by the way. I felt light and, and energetic did very well at the obstacle course that day. And thankfully, when the other drill sergeant saw me again, he just kind of grinned and smirked and let it go. And he walked off. He never said a word, but I could, I could see it in his eyes that he knew that he'd made it. And, and, and it worked, because never again did I put my hands in my pockets, at least not in boot camp. I, I was fixed in boot camp. So here's the word of the Lord now that comes to Jeremiah, and he's not instructed to put the yoke back on. He's not instructed to make another set. But he is given a message to go and deliver to Hananiah, and he'll do so privately. So it comes to Jeremiah after Hananiah the prophet had broken the yoke from off the neck of the prophet Jeremiah, saying, Go and speak to Hananiah, saying, Thus says the Lord, You have broken yokes of wood, but you've made instead yokes of iron. All right? (laughs) Wow. What does defiance do? Defiance makes it worse. Defiance just ramps it up. Defiance is like, you know, Trump saying, yeah, that wall just got 10 feet higher. All right? These yokes of wood just became yokes of iron. How do you like me now? I have put a yoke of iron 
Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, I have put a yoke of iron on the necks of all these nations that they may serve Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. They will serve him. I have also given him the beasts of the field. See, it gets stated again. This is so unusual. Then Jeremiah the prophet said to Hananiah the prophet, Listen now, Hananiah, the Lord has not sent you. You have made this people trust in a lie. Therefore, thus says the Lord, Behold, I'm about to remove you from the face of the earth. This year you're going to die. Now think about this. What grace. What mercy. He doesn't say you're going to die and you're going to die right here, right now, today. He says this year. You know what that's about? He's getting a repentance opportunity. He gets a chance to humble himself, repent. This year you're going to die because you have counseled rebellion against the Lord. So Hananiah the prophet died the same year in the seventh month. It was just two months later. In the seventh month of the year, Hananiah dies. He's got, he has two months to, to uh, repent. And could have been longer, could have been shorter, didn't know. It was just sometime this year. And it's already the fifth month. Okay? And by the seventh month, there was no repentance. There was no move that direction. There was nothing but hostility. And Hananiah dies. Yokes of wood become yokes of iron. Understand this, failure to submit to divine discipline results in an intensified divine discipline. Always, 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 always. Ultimately then, what's the final step? Sin unto death. Hananiah caused the people to trust in a lie. You know, faith, people that tell you, well, it doesn't matter what you believe as long as you're sincere. That's a lie. Because if you believe a lie, your faith has no value. Don't try to tell me that faith is faith when there's faith in an eternal promise and there's faith in a lie from the pit of hell. Lying from the, uh, uh, the, the faith in, in Christ and faith in God the Father, that's what we're dealing with. That's reality. That's of infinite value. That's the provision for eternal life is faith in Christ. But faith in a lie? There's no value in that. Don't tell me that faith is faith and love is love and blah, blah, blah. There is truth and there is a lie. And faith in truth is what it's about. Love does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices in the truth. Anything else that's rejoicing in unrighteousness, by God's definition, is not love. So God assigns the sin and the death to those who lead the people of God to destruction And how many examples do we have? I can't preach all this in three minutes, but how many examples do we have? Go to 1 John 5, 16. You'll find out there's a sin unto death. We shouldn't ask for it. We shouldn't want it. We shouldn't pray for it. But it does happen. And when it does happen, we we acknowledge the righteousness of God in so doing. Particularly those who lead the people of God to destruction. Teachers are accountable. Pastors are accountable. Shepherds are accountable. You want several examples of this? How about Leviticus 10? Ever heard of Nadab and Abihu? Okay. There's a reason why Eleazar and Ithamar became the oldest two sons of Aaron. The reason why is because they had been the thirdborn and fourthborn son of Aaron until, Eleazar, until Nadab and Abihu were destroyed. They brought strange fire before the Lord and they died the sin and the death. Numbers 31, you have Balaam. Numbers 31, verse 8 and verse 16, you got the example of Balaam. Balaam was never allowed to curse Israel, 
But Balaam did influence the procedure whereby the Midianite women came and seduced the men of Israel into fornication. And because Israel was led into this idolatry, God disciplined Israel. And in effect, Moab, uh, 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 Balak got what he wanted. Even though Balaam couldn't directly give it to him, Balaam gave him indirectly the cursing of Israel. Balaam dies the sin and the death. The way of Balaam that's warned about in Revelation 2.14. Then there's, uh, there's the positive example of David in 2 Samuel 12, verses 13 and 14. When the prophet Nathan exposes David and says, you are the man, you are the man. You murdered Uriah, you committed, you fornicated with Bathsheba. You are the man. What does David say? I've got to close with this because I'm out of time. David says, I have sinned. No excuses. No, yeah, but. No, well, you understand. Or, well, kind of. All he says is, I have sinned. And what's the reply? Look how close David was. He says, I have sinned. And, and, and Nathan says, all right, uh, 2 Samuel 12, verses 13 and 14. David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, the Lord has also taken away your sin. You shall not die. Wow. You know how close David was? Are you telling me, I mean, right then, right there, I think any other words out of his mouth would have been David's last words. You shall not die. However, <laughs> that's like a but or yet. There's a however. Because by this deed you have given occasion to the enemies of the Lord to blaspheme, the child also that is born to you shall surely die. So Nathan went to his house. And there's consequences. There are consequences. There's consequences with this baby. There's consequences with his adult children. For the rest of David's earthly life, David faces consequences for this terrible fall. Okay? But that's how close he was to the sin and the death. I think we need to be mindful of that. Father, I thank you for this day. I thank you for the prophet Jeremiah. I thank you for his faithfulness in serving you and remaining faithful, remaining true. How easy would it be just to go along and get along and buddy up with Hananiah and all the other crowd that was preaching the happy news and imagine father man they must have been living living well and eating well and all the the grand and glorious things that come with uh, tickling the people's ears but father Jeremiah stayed faithful and uh, and I thank you for that so father teach us these lessons teach us to discern between the truth and the lie father thank you for a body of believers for this flock Father, the, the, the believers of Austin Bible Church who do not put up with the, with the lie, they're not here for the fun and games or the entertainment. They're here to be fed. And Father, we, we live in dark days. We live in, in a time where we need the, the, the message of Isaiah and Jeremiah. We need the truth, Father. We need to live that truth. And Father, I do uh, pray that we would be very clear in this. The gospel we preach, Father, in, in all things. If there's anyone here today that doesn't have eternal life, that doesn't know Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior, I pray that this is the day that they come to understand. It's not the church they attend or how religious they are or all the good things they do. It's not walking an aisle or getting baptized. It's placing their faith in Jesus Christ. He who believes has eternal life. And I pray that this might be the day that it happens. Right here, right now, with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Right here, right now. 
if you are without Christ, without hope, without eternal life, at this moment you can believe in Christ, believe in Jesus. He died on the cross for your sins and mine. Believe in Jesus Christ and receive eternal life. I thank you, Father, in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.